And we have Leonie Freeman and Sawan Manning this afternoon. I just want to just quickly duck back to something that Leonie Freeman said in her IBT, which resonated uh, a little bit. Um, for example, here's one. Leonie talked about the amazing level of care that people have had. We often forget about it in our hospitals. For example, here's one. Middlemore was amazing for my friend who fell off the roof onto concrete. From paramedics to ED to pain doctors and nurses, I was really amazed at the high level of care. Uh, With us, uh, who wants to give another shout-out, is Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Welcome to the panel. Thank you, Wallace. Yeah, what's what's your story? What's your shout-out? Well... In February, my wife went to the doctor for a routine um, prescription renewal and they hadn't done a blood test for a while, so they um, did a blood test. And uh, two days later, we got called back and uh, she was told that she had myeloma um, blood cancer. Now, Mm. I have to say, you know, she started chemotherapy two weeks later and we just had a big dose of chemotherapy and and a stem cell transplant. The service we've had from the haematology department in Christchurch Hospital has been world class. Well, I cannot fault them. They have done everything for us, and they are just just wonderful. It's a wonderful message, isn't it, Bruce, when we hear Orson Irons said how strapped and how... Um, uh, how 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 stumped they are for staff, for equipment, for supplies. You know, there's so many pressures in the health system, and yet to hear a story like yours. Yes, well, as you say, that a lot of people sort of have that negative impression, and, and and there's a lot of negative stories. But as I say, our experience has been extremely positive, and I just can't praise them enough. The the, the staff have just been wonderful. Good on you, Bruce. Nice one. Kia ora. This shout out to the hematology department at Christchurch Hospital. 4.38, the panel. Well, as many of our grandparents have told us, growing up is not for the faint-hearted. We're living longer, but those extra years aren't all in good health. Nwanthi Samarokain brought this up in her, I've been thinking, on Monday. Who will pay to care for us when we grow old, within the next 30 years, the amount of people who are over 85 years old will roughly treble, according to researchers at the University of Auckland. How can society prepare for this shift and the high costs involved? Thought mm, worth coming back to this one with us is Associate Professor in Economics at the University of Auckland Business School, Susan St. John. Uh, Susan Kiota, nice to have you here. And good afternoon, Wallace. How old is our population expected to become? Uh, Well, as you've said, we're going to see a vast increase in the numbers aged over 65. But when we look at the numbers aged over 85, they're expected to treble by mid-century. We're looking at a looming crisis that has surprisingly little attention paid to it. I know we've got an awful lot of other things to worry about, but this is actually quite a major one. In that, I mean, you say we're just simply not prepared uh, for the realities of our Asian population. Uh, Is that because it feeds into so many problems? For example, the complexities of health 
as you age? Yes, and really we're highlighting here two problems. First of all, it's the real resource problem. Will we have enough health professionals, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, palliative care, et cetera, et cetera, people uh, to, to service the needs of a vastly older population? And the second concern is, are we sharing the costs fairly or is there better that we can do to modernise our system of paying for healthcare costs? We've just heard that the public health service can work really, really well for people. That's a social insurance programme. But what about residential aged care, where we operated on a different basis, where basically people are expected to use their own assets and savings before asking for anything from the state? And this means that those that are unfortunate enough to need residential aged care, uh, and it might be for a period up to 10 years, or it might be just a few days, but it might be up to 10 years. So it's a long time and it's very expensive. And it means that a couple's base assets can be run down extremely quickly. Yeah. Yes, and we've heard, Leone, uh, stories like that, haven't we? Uh, mm. Assets been run down very quickly as you start looking at aged care. Yes. Um, I mean, my mum's always said old age is a gift that's denied to many. So I always start from that perspective. So I do think that um, it, it is a gift if you get to live that long because many people don't. Um, and Susan, I'm just interested, to, you know, you're talking about uh, looking at the cost models and things like that. What what would you recommend as an alternative? I think there's a number of things wrong with what we're doing at the moment. We've got a very old-fashioned means test that treats couples particularly harshly, um, but it requires, whether you're single or in a couple situation, for assets to be run down to an incredibly low level, 273000 if you include the family home. Um, if you don't include the family home, 150000 so these are very low levels of overall assets mm. uh, and the way that the means test is designed can impact very unfairly on a second wife or a third wife in a marriage where she's younger, he's older, he needs care and her assets are depleted. So there's aspects of what we do currently mm. that really need to be modernised. But over and above that, we need to think more creatively about how we should share the costs uh, between those that are fortunate enough not to need old age care and those that are unfortunate enough to need it. Selwyn. Yeah, it's good to talk to you, um, Susan. Um, Great to hear that wisdom coming through. And one of the things that's always stood out to me is there's an imbalance relating to aged care and continuing care in New Zealand in the sense that it's largely profit-driven from the point of view of service and then topped up like you have identified very strongly with with the subsidy, government subsidy coming across and also the private accumulated assets within family groups. And thanks for that work. It's fantastic. I wonder whether or not the solutions also may include, and we could start with real sincere and and forthright dialogues on it, is looking at the uh, public and private provision elements of it, meaning that we've heard today the amount of confidence that has gone into a public health system response. Why 
can't we actually look at that type of model also in the continuing care and aged care sectors? Um, one of the things that stands out to me from an economics point of view is that the social investment part perhaps isn't in keeping with the profit models that are there for people experiencing the need for care. And it, let's be frank, a lot of those that are here profiteering off both the taxpayer fund and the accumulated private assets of the individuals seeking care are overseas owned. And that, that concerns me in, in a great degree relating to many elements of the economy, but also what it says to New Zealanders. So I'm just putting that out there and putting it back to the expert here, who's Susan, um, seeing what your views are. Final on response, things. Susan? Uh, well, I think what we see in the aged residential care sector at the moment is a great deal of trouble um, and struggle to make that profit you're talking about or to even just provide the service. We've got a shortage of aged care workers. We've, we don't pay them enough um, so that we've got real capacity constraints and I agree that some sort of public solution that incorporates an element as we have in the public health system would be helpful. But also, I think on the financial side, that we need to help people be better protected from the effects of this means test that hits those middle income retirees so dramatically. And we can do that with various approaches that we're exploring in the Pensions and Intergenerational Equity Hub. Very good, Susan. Uh, it's an issue that will keep on being with us for uh, some time to come. I, I reckon now Susan St John there, Associate Professor in Economics at the University of Auckland Business School. All right, it is just after uh, quarter to five on the panel and now to the SNAP panel polls. By the way, thank you for all your responses, large response to the poll, which was it's just a sort of snapshot uh, of uh, where your thinking's at. Uh, I asked you, do you support congestion charging? Uh, 65 of you said yes and 35% said no to congestion charges thanks for your feedback this afternoon Wallace you've never still told us what you were going to vote well (laughs) I mean look at the time and I can't wait to get to our next topic here which (laughs) thanks Leonie which is this it has been found go to the TMO (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly I'm looking through the window now to my TMO it's been found that some Auckland hospitality and retail employers have been exploiting migrant workers now this includes pay below the minimum wage, no employment contracts, breaches of visa conditions, no record keeping and employers demanding money from their staff. Many serious breaches were found in a large scale crackdown last week following formal complaints. With us to discuss is Head of the Labour Inspectorate, Simon Humphreys. Simon, kia ora. Thank you for having me on. Very good. I was quite interested in this. This is uh, Sally Winley from R&D did a report on this. And you'd received formal complaints. Were you surprised to find so many serious breaches when you expected? When you expected, brother? You know, I think my my first thoughts is around disappointed um, to to obviously any exploitation of any worker or migrant worker is unacceptable. So of the 85. But the, the, the flip side, I guess, for me too, though, 
is that when you have people making complaints about their conditions at work and how they are being treated or, or mistreated, I think part of the, the, the outcome here that we've seen is a bit of validation for those workers, though. So it's kind of, and it also helps with that trust and confidence that there is a place that people can reach out and, and raise their concerns. So um, I guess the level of and the breadth of the, the, the breaches, um, yes, probably a little bit surprised, um, but equally, um, I guess I'll just touching on that as well. I've been asked previously around the number that we visit being 85 and whilst that's a reasonably high number, I certainly don't want that to, to come across as being what we're saying is indicative of the whole of the hospitality and retail uh, sectors. No, okay, not indicative. Nonetheless, uh, Salwin, 85, um, pretty uh, startling. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I guess what my main concerns are here too is, you know, and I share those deep concerns relating to the exploited workforce. What is the percentage, if any, of um, illegal um, illegal employment um, from the point of view of perhaps those that have been brought in under false pretenses to, in good, from their point of view, good faith to work in the New Zealand environment and finding that that uh, has not been delivered for them and they're finding themselves in a terrible situation. And I suppose I'm getting back to issues that raised were raised a couple of years ago by people like Mike Treen at Unite Union and also um, others that were around that case and raising the con- concerns of those that found themselves in New Zealand through no fault of their own in, in an illegal employment situation and facing deportation. Yes, I think I think it's really important, um, and I guess there's, there's some broader kind of uh, more broad immigration um, issues there, which are kind of best suited for for immigration dealing to kind of lean into as well. But I think in relation to here, I mean, you also touched on the Unite Union. I think that's a really important part for us. So one is that you know, we, we're still in a phase. You know, this is three days last week, so we're still in a phase where there's still information requests out with some employers. So we haven't yet got the full analysis of the factors that you 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 can uh, you, you you're raising. But certainly that is something that we need to be looking to do. Is it got any insight that we can take from here? And how can we use the insights to further inform other parts of, of the system? But equally, how can we work? And I, you know, interesting with the, with the unions. I mean, I'm really interested in how we can work better with our social partners and our unions because that's how we're going to be able to have sustained system change, I think. Leonie. Mm. So what happens now after you've identified these companies um, and yeah. they're breaking some of the rules? What, what happens next? Next step. Yeah, so that's right. So what what we need to do is we look at the the, the breaches and the level of the breaches and the seriousness. And of course, we have a there is that graduated response. Um, you know, there's a number of levers in our interventions. Uh, one being we want to be able to educate employers as well, because I think it's important to note that not all employers that would breach the, the minimum standards are doing so uh, knowingly. Uh, there are people that just simply um, avoid of some of the information they need to run there. Their, uh, their business correctly, so we want to look at where we can educate to change that performance. Equally, where there are uh, at the other end of that spectrum, employers who have been more knowingly exploiting, uh, then that's when we can start using the levers, the enforcement levers, for example, and friendship notices. But and, and the next step, of course, as I said, is that we are still currently investigating some of of the employers that visited, uh, which was potentially some different outcomes. All right, Simon, thank you very much uh, for that. That's Simon Humphreys there, head of the Labourer Inspectorate. Uh, that story there, uh, finding that some Auckland hospitality and retail employers have been 
uh, exploiting uh, migrant workers there. Um, Luke in Wellington says we need to support our families, community to support their elderly rather than sending the money overseas to overseas corporations involved in elderly care. Use some of the saving to support those that really need support or have no family remaining. But a response actually on caring for the elderly uh, in the 21st century. Finally, on uh, the panel with Leonie Freeman and Sowen Manning, the issue was raised about the possible closure of the Brindurwins connecting Northland yesterday. We discussed uh, that with Darren Fisher, the CEO of Northland Chamber of Commerce. And he said, look, you can still come and visit and don't forget those little places along the way. And he mentioned one, which was the Cody Museum at uh, Matakohe. And that pricked up my ear because... I have seen the sign, I can see it in my mind's eye, driving past, saying to my wife, oh, one day we must stop in there, uh, 10 years ago, but I've never turned off to check it out, despite being fascinated by our Cody and Cody gum culture. Uh, but I am in the north this summer, it may be time. With us is Dr. Jason Smith, the director and a fifth-generation local descendant of Matakohi Albert Land Pioneers. Dr. Smith, nice to have you here on the panel. Uh, kia ora, Wallace. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's nice to have you here. First, thoughts on Brindewin's closing. Will that, will, that, will that possible closure, that is, will that affect the Cody Museum at all? Uh, look, so so th- there's two things here. So, yes, it would, and the reason, in a bad way, because uh, it would send a message, uh, which is a bad, wrong message, all through the country that Northland is closed, which is not true because Northland is absolutely open. So people yeah. might choose to go to other parts of the country. That's the first thing. So it is a problem. But the second thing is this. if uh, To get to the Kauri Museum, you don't go to the Brinduans. You turn before the Brinduans. You don't have to cross the Brinduans to get to the Kauri Museum. So Wallace... The Kauri Museum is one hour north of the end of the Auckland motorway. There you go. It's not far, Wallace. <laughs> You've convinced me. It's, look, it's been years because, you know, my my father was a minister, you know, a Methodist minister in a tiny colonial little church all made of Kauri. And the wood, uh, Leone, it just sang, sang to me, that honey-coloured wood, Kauri. I've always wanted to go. Have you been? Yes, but a long time ago. Yeah, I can't remember when, but I have been there. Selwyn? Yeah, I've been there, and I'd, I'd just point out, it says here right in front of me, 9am to 5pm as it's open, <laughs> so there's a big plug. <laughs> so good on you for that. It, it, it takes me back to, you know, so many things, you know, the stories that we heard about. Yes. You mm. know, people way back in our, um, you know, in our own history, so our own whakapapa, if you like, you know, going back in, in a time. But also, when we were kids, where I was growing up in South Auckland, they were putting through sewage lines, and it was in Takanini. And all of us kids were out there, we were at primary school age, and we were hunting for kauri gum, you know, it was everywhere. Really? And this guy down the road, he was a little bit older than me, but he was a great guy, um, family, friends, um, the Hodgins family. And, and Robert Hodgins, he found this great big bit of kauri that kauri gum, I should say, that must have been near two kilograms. And so we were all out to try and beat Robert's finds, you know. But this type of thing, <laughs> you know, with, with, with things like this museum and what it's got on show and everything, it taps us into our own experiences as much as other people's. Yeah, and so and good. 
raising it. It's a great nice issue. one. Oh, thanks, Sal. And yeah, just today, a couple of Coromandel kids, um, uh, you know, found a big, big uh, bit of Cody gum there. Uh, Jason, describe those of us who haven't been there. Describe the museum museum a bit for us. Well, well, so first of all, uh, look, look, we're out here. We're deep in the heart of an ancient forest that's gone, and you have a museum at the Kauri Museum, which is four and a half thousand square metres of exhibition halls, treasure troves, and amazing, amazing exhibits. Four and a half thousand square metres, it's nearly half the size of Tapapa. But it's in a village of Matakohi, which wow. is way out on... Uh, because you've not been, Wallace, and most <laughs> of New Zealand has not been, it's a treat in store for you. What people say in our visitors' books is... How have you got a museum as immaculate as this and as large as this and telling a story that's so important way out here in the middle of nowhere? And and I go, no, 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 we're at the very heart of an ancient forest that's gone. I, I, look, I'm booking in. I'm booking in. And look, you've well, got... you've an got, hour up the road, Wallace. Well, you, yeah. <laughs> you've got fans. Stuart says, the Cody Museum, fantastic. I stop there every time I go past, but not frequently enough. It's one of those fascinating little known museums, like the Timber Museum in Putaradu. I didn't know how large it was. Um, and it has the, you have the biggest collection of Cody gum in the world. Uh, that, look, that's exactly right. So kauri gum is, of course, the, the hardened resin of the trees. And the kauri gum collection here, is, some, some of these pieces are hundreds of thousands of years old, all right? And so that's really significant. It is like fossilised kauri gum. But, but here's the thing, uh, you know, the linkage between this and the Baltic amber stories from the Tsars of Russia is really important. People have been attracted to these shiny bits of resin. And the Kauri Gum collection at the Kauri Museum is is one of the kind of great wonders of New Zealand tourism. But so many people don't know it's here. And so and we also have other very important new uh, exhibitions and spaces here at the Kauri Museum now. We now are talking about, from the very beginning of time, the separation between the earth and sky between uh, Ranginu and Papatuanuku. It's called Te Waunui o Tane, where um, Tane Mahuta has, in the form of a Kauri tree, separated the earth and the sky in New Zealand to create and bring light into the world. The Kauri story was the very heart and beginning of the New Zealand creation story. Well, I'm amazed and we are doing that in... at the Kauri Museum. <laughs> Here's one. How cool. Kids 6 to 13, they all love the Jason Kiora and Sarah Manning, Leonie Freeman. Fantastic stuff from you both. Really appreciate your time. I'm Wallace Chapman, back tomorrow. 3.45. See you then. Lisa Owen and Checkpoint next.